Hey, and welcome to this week's episode of the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. Thanks guys for sticking around. I know the ones that those of you that do listen, obviously all of you that are listening now, um, I appreciate you. And I know it's been a while, but we're going to get back on a regular schedule. I said that in the last episode, and it is happening. So, if you listened to the Crazy Cults and Creepy Children episode, (laughs) you might like this one. It's kind of becoming like a small series. Bless you, Leia. It's kind of becoming a small series because I've got another one in the works that's related to that one and this one. So yeah, I can't believe that episode is as popular as it is, but that's exciting. So we'll dive into more shitty shit surrounding the satanic panic and adrenochrome ritual sacrifice and QAnon. Um, I was supposed to go over housekeeping items first, but really the only thing that I can say is thank you guys so much for your support. There are items up in the Etsy shop. I am revamping the website and probably going to make some changes to the other shop sites as well. So I've been tinkering with that, doing a lot of research, and I just want to provide you guys with the best quality, all of the things. So yeah, Uh, just a reminder The Primordia Podcast is now a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. And the Green Mushroom Podcast Network is super fucking awesome and houses hosts a lot of shows such as Ad Hoc History, Unearthing Paranormalcy, one of my favorites, um, XV Planus, Lux Occult, and others. A lot of others, actually. You can check out their catalog of shows as well as other information about the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. In the episode description, I will leave a source link for you guys if it fits. All right. Also, one more agenda item before we jump in. We will be rolling out a summer special program for everyone soon that is interested called Camp Strange. So I'm super fucking stoked about it. So stay tuned for info on that within the month. So sometime this April, you will get information on Camp Strange. So if you're interested in attending, yeah. And of course, it'll be free because camps that cost money, you know, I mean, I get it, but you know, this won't be one. Before we begin, I just want to reiterate that we are diving into some thick shit this week, so you might want to get some suits on and prepare yourself for the muck. Let this be your content warning. (laughs) There will be descriptions of child abuse, child sacrifice, and the likes, so please, please listen at your own discretion. I will be- and don't listen around kids, holy shit. Um, they should be listening to my podcast anyways, because I curse too much. I will be providing some links at the end of the episode if you suspect a child may be suffering from abuse at home or elsewhere. Hopefully that's never a scenario you're presented with, but if so, fucking be a decent human being and report it immediately 
so that kid doesn't have to continue to be traumatized. Okay? Thank you. All right. To paint a more detailed picture of the contents of this episode, I thought it appropriate that we start out by reviewing the Satanic Panic. Beginning in the 1980s in America, and if you remember the previous episode about cults and shit post-apartheid South Africa, the Satanic Panic began en masse when multitudes of stories of cattle mutilation, child sacrifice, and child abuse spread like wildfire through numerous communities. Top that with the impact already made by Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan in the late 60s, and you have yourself a cocktail of paranoia in white suburbia. Now, you might have heard shit about the Satanic Panic recently, and that's because, well, it's kind of been revamped by Quackanon. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to dive into, like, a bunch of Quackanon shit, but I am going to briefly mention it at the end of the episode. <laughs> The satanic panic became an issue when dozens of institutions, mostly daycares and schools, were accused of ritual abuse against children. Mothers and fathers were also accused, as well as other family members. No one really was safe from the accusation back then. And we're going to cover a few of these cases, so just prepare yourselves. And you can make your own decisions about whether or not you think these cases were valid, credible real cases, okay? In 1983, a quiet, unassuming preschool was tucked away in California's Manhattan Beach area. It was called the Virginia McMartin Preschool, and hundreds of kids attended this institution. It wouldn't stay quiet or unassuming for long, however. In August of that year, Judy Johnson, the mother of several of the attendees of the preschool, reported that her son had been sexually abused by a staff member at the preschool, one Raymond Bucky. She reported it to the authorities and had her son interviewed and extensively examined by social workers and doctors, who determined that, after much interrogation, her son had been abused. Raymond Bucky was arrested, though released with no, when no evidence was found, and a letter was sent out to families of other students as a precautionary measure, and they wanted, they wanted to make sure no other kids had been abused. Of course, the sending the letter home kind of backfired because then a bunch of parents, like, were interrogating their children about it and getting them basically to say that things had happened, um, even though initially many of the kids told their parents and school people and officials and authorities, whatever, that nothing had happened. They, after a lot of influencing really in my opinion they started coming forward with really strange stories of ritual abuse goat people hidden passageways under the school and flying school staff members like that one kid said a teacher floated kids were interviewed by several social workers at cii or children's institute international including one Kathleen Key McFarlane deemed that a handful of teachers and school staff members, including Ray Bucky, his sister Peggy, and their grandmother Virginia McMartin, who founded the school, had abused upwards of 360 children under their care. McFarlane and others concluded that the kids suffered from molestation, sodomy, were made to watch small animals being mutilated and participate in child pornography, play sex games, and take part in strange rituals. 
The FBI was sent out to investigate the case and the preschool itself, and after much research, they found nothing. No evidence of child pornography, no passageways under the school, no evidence of satanic worship or rituals. They could find nothing to corroborate the testimonies of the children nor the prosecutor prosecution's story. The jury and judge overall failed to convict any of the accused on any of the charges, and many believe that the children were coerced into telling their stories and given details to simply repeat at their certainly impressionable age. One of the children who gave their testimony to authorities and court officials was Kyle Sapp, now Kyle Zipolo. In 2005, Kyle made a startling statement of apology as an adult. The allegations from his childhood were false. He simply made them up because it was what his parents wanted to hear. You can find his apology in many newspaper articles that circulated the story at the time, including the Los Angeles Times, which is where I sourced this information from. In his statement of apology, Kyle tells of family dysfunction and his inability to gain the love and affection of his stepfather, a police officer with the Manhattan Beach PD at the time. One of nine kids whose parents often asked them disturbing questions about the public places they visited, suggesting clear suggestion on the part of the parents, specifically the mother. Kyle wanted to be accepted. When his family was one of the many that received the mysterious letter from the authorities about the alleged abuse, his mother went on the offensive and had Kyle sent to CII to be interrogated with the rest of the bunch. Kyle recounts of his time at CII, I don't remember how many days or if it was just one day, but my memory tells me it was weeks. It seemed so long. It was an ordeal. I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to get out of here unless I tell them what they want to hear. We were examined by a doctor. I took my clothes off and lay down on the table. They checked my butt, my penis. There was a room with a lot of toys and stuffed animals and dolls. The dolls were pasty white and had, their, and had hair where the private areas were. They wanted us to take off their clothes. It was just really weird. I remember them asking extremely uncomfortable questions about whether Ray touched me and about all the teachers and what they did, and I remember telling them nothing happened to me. I remember them almost giggling and laughing, saying, Oh, we know these things happened to you. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Use these dolls if you're scared. Anytime I would give them an answer they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answer they were looking for. It was really obvious what they wanted. I know the types of language they used on me. Things like I was smart or I could help the other kids who were scared. I felt uncomfortable and a little ashamed that I was being dishonest. But at the same time, being the type of person I was, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. And I thought they wanted me to help protect my little brother and sister who went to McMartin. Sounds like the encounter at CII was traumatizing. Many kids that have to go through a similar process do recount that those experiences were traumatizing in themselves. Because his family attended a Catholic church, Kyle says he was able to manufacture pieces of the story to fit the sat satanic narrative the investigators were encouraging. At the end of the day, the community was pissed that the children went unheard and that the abuse wasn't stopped, though police and authorities were satisfied that the case was closed and over. Another similar incident occurred in Evansville, Indiana, around 1989-1990. 
I know, fuck. This will be the last preschool case we cover in the episode, but allegations against preschools and daycares made up the majority of cases within the original Satanic Panic era, as I mentioned previously, so I thought it was important to cover some of them. Anyway, back to the second case. This one's a little different because the allegations are mainly against one school administrator who was accused of taking seven to nine children from school to a blue house on Franklin Street to ritually sexually abuse them. Unfortunately, the prosecuting investigator for the case didn't believe the children at all and motioned for all of the charges to be dropped, even though many people felt the children had actually been traumatized in some way. Now, as for the origin of this case, I unfortunately couldn't find many credible sources, so I'm not sure who submitted the first allegation against the school administrator or how the police initially got involved, though I'm sure that information's out there somewhere. All in all, between seven and nine children were all interviewed for signs of abuse. They shared similar stories of being plucked from school by the administrator and being taken to a little blue house that happened to be on Franklin Street. Once there, the kids' claims vary. Some say they were sexually abused, while others say they witnessed animals being killed or were cut with knives themselves, forced to take part in bizarre rituals they didn't really understand. After a few children were displaying warning signs of sleeplessness, paranoia, violent outbursts, etc., they were interviewed and it was determined that they had suffered some form of abuse. Five of the children came from two families and two of the other girls had contact with each other. The kids also had been interviewed by Rick Doninger, who headed a local organization against the abuse of children called SPAM. Because of this and a lack of any substantiating evidence, Prosecutor Stanley Levko felt that he couldn't, quote, in good conscience, submit a request for a search warrant of the Blue House or the schools. He didn't believe the children at all and made sure everyone knew that. Levko and another investigator, Sergeant Larry Sparsk, believed it couldn't have occurred the way the children claimed it did, and so charges were dismissed and no convictions were ever made. University of Southern Indiana's professor of psychology, Susan Donaldson, believes the children, on the other hand. Her interviews concluded that some of the children had identical, faint scars on them and showed clear signs of physical and psychological abuse. Something happened to those children, she states in this Chicago Tribune article covering the story. This case is interesting because, though no one was convicted, the media scooped up the story and ran with it, and so we have wonderful programs about this case, like The Devil's Playground, a television feature aired by Fox's A Current Affair, Affair, and I can't remember what year. Alright. In 1976, a woman from Victoria, British Columbia, named Michelle Smith, was being treated for depression due to a miscarriage by psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder. After a particular session, Smith told Pazder she had something important to tell him, but could not remember what it was. During a subsequent session, Smith reportedly screamed for over 20 minutes and then eventually told Pazder that she had suffered ritual sexual abuse and torture at the hands of her mother and others, who were all part of a satanic cult, apparently. Um, oh, I forgot to mention that 
these sessions were like hypnosis sessions, that probably would be important to know. <laughs> With supposedly over 600 hours spent under hypnosis, Smith shared stories of witnessing animals and humans being slaughtered. Sound familiar? Locked in cages and being tortured herself as a five-year-old. Her abuse culminated, according to her, with an 81-day ritual to summon Satan that resulted in Jesus, Mary, and the archangel Michael crashing the party, removing Smith's scars and memories, quote, until the time was right for her. Together, Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazer wrote and published the book Michelle Remembers, which is a collection of recovered memories, of things suffered by Smith when she was a child. It centers heavily around the satanic aspects of ritual abuse, demons, and angels, according to summaries anyways, I have not read it, and was widely circulated at the time of its publishing. Smith and Pazder even did tours to recount Smith's story to believers, and they earned a decent amount of money from the book sales and tours. They made claims against the Church of Satan specifically in regards to Smith's abuse. Turns out, however, it was all a farce or at least nothing was ever proven. The book gives no evidence or testimonies from others to corroborate Smith's story and has since been discredited. Anton LaVey sued Smith and Pazder for libel since they had smeared the Church of Satan in the book, which had just taken its root a few years prior to Smith's claims. Investigations into the matters found that Smith had never really been absent from school for long periods of time, let alone 81 days straight, nor did she ever show any signs of her or her family participating in cult activity. Now, that's not to say cult activity isn't easy to hide, because people do it all the fucking time, and then sometimes those that do see it turn a, bl a blind eye, turn a blind eye, you know. But things that Smith claimed happened turned out to be false claims, and she never identified any of her abusers other than her mother. Pazder and Smith ended up marrying after years of working together as patient and doctor, and many believe their relationship and religious beliefs played a huge part in influencing Smith's recovered memories. Now, ritual sacrifice isn't a new idea. In fact, Evidence of ritual, sacrifice ha ha ritual sacrifices have been found in the earliest civilizations that we've uncovered so far. We'll take a break from some of the modern stories and dive into some of the older, farther-from-home cases just for a bit of ancient ritual sacrifice. In 2011, near Trujillo, Peru, I hope I'm saying that right, at a site called Huanchaquito Las Llamas, Archaeologists were called to dig and investigate an area where human and animal bones had been discovered. A second nearby site was found at Pampa La Cruz, where more children and llamas were unearthed. 269 children and 466 llamas, and three adults, in total were found to be ritually sacrificed. Cuts in the rib and sternum areas of the children and the llamas suggest careful removal of, hearts of the hearts prior to burial. All of the children were between the ages of 5 and 14, which was confusing to researchers. Why would children, the future during such hard times, be ritually sacrificed in such large numbers? Archaeologists aren't positive as to the reason, but many speculate it was a ceremonial part of Chimu religion at the time to make sacrifices during times of severe weather, 
So they think it may have been due to a long drought in the area at the time, which would have been around 1450 AD. In Templo Mayor, Tenochtitlan, 42 children were mass sacrificed. Turns out they, all young males, suffered from mouth infections, cavities, and abscesses that were probably painful enough to make them cry aloud often, if not constantly. This was good for sacrifices to the Aztec god Tlaloc, as he required the tears of children to wet the earth. Rain. In fact, apparently if kids being sacrificed weren't crying, their nails would sometimes be ripped off in order to get them going. In ancient Egan culture, it was there was a specific sacrificial ritual known as the, I'm so sorry if I butcher this, Chapak Hucha, during which children were given an intoxicating drink that sometimes rendered them unconscious before being killed and placed on the mountaintop, left to the elements and freezing temperatures. Some of the children were simply left to die of exposure, while others suffered blows to the head, like the first girl who was found in 1995, or they were strangled. The Americas aren't the only places where child sacrifice was prevalent during ancient times. You can find instances in the Minoans of Crete, or with the Minoans of Crete, the Phoenicians of and Carthage, in the Bible with Isaac and Abraham, in the Tanakh, in the Quran, you name it. There's actually a book I'm going to mention later on that covers many of those cases, both ancient and modern, around the world. Uh, there's like tons of fucking volumes um, on it. And as always, take it with a grain of salt, but we'll, I'll mention the book later, so. There, of course, there is so, 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 so much more we could talk about as far as ancient ritual sacrifice here goes, but maybe another time for the sake of this, the length of this episode. We'll see. It'd be nice to say that we all live in a modern world free of child slavery. Or, I'm sorry, free of child sacrifice. Those days are over, right? Unfortunately, not. In Uganda and Ethiopia, ritual child sacrifice is still a threat that many face in their communities. We'll start off in Uganda before we move on over to Ethiopia. It's technically illegal to be a witch doctor in Uganda these days, though carrying out that law can be difficult for police in the country that are actually underfunded. Like, they're actually underfunded. Not like, not like what we mean here when we say it, and sorry, I accidentally hit the mic. <laughs> Got a little passionate. Anyways, most of the police either have no gas in their patrol cars or no patrol cars, cars at all, okay? Let alone enough human power to patrol efficiently and work on the multitude of cases that come through their doors every day. To also put something else in perspective, though, one child in Uganda is killed every week, minimum, for ritual sacrificial reasons, and within one year recently, I think it was 2019, 30 children went missing. One year. Caleb Wilde, a funeral director work working with World Vision, <sighs> Caleb Wilde, a funeral director working with World Vision, visited Uganda in 2018 and witnessed firsthand the country's fight to end child sacrifice. 
In the week that Caleb was in Uganda, there were two children who were kidnapped, tortured, and killed as part of ritual sacrifice. He met with Obed Buyamugisha, who works in his local community to help apprehend suspects and kidnappers, warn townspeople, etc., and has even developed an alarm system called Amber Alert that works off of drums and megaphone announcements with vital information used by villagers to act quickly when a child has been abducted, which is fucking awesome. Obed has himself witnessed numerous children who have fallen victim to witch doctors, their agents, and sometimes even their own families. Some he has helped save, while others weren't so lucky. In the article Caleb wrote and published for World Vision, Obed tells Caleb of one particularly haunting experience. He heard some screams, ran over to the location the screams were coming from, and found a mother hysterically yelling over the decapitated body of her eight-year-old son. The murder had happened only moments before she found him. Obed, in a frenzy, scooped up the body, jumped on a moped, and started driving to the nearest medic because, he told me, the boy was still moving and I thought I could save him. Of course, I was traumatized and I still am, he confessed. Of course, most Ugandans will tell you that even though it is illegal to practice witchcraft in the country, it is legal to practice alternative healing methods as a traditional healer, and many witch doctors hide behind this title in order to continue their operations. One such traditional healer turned change agent, change agent, is Kibiko Edward, who was interviewed by an NRC representative. Norwegian Refugee Council in Kampala, Uganda, known as the NRC, partners with World Vision and other organizations, like another one we'll get into in just a moment, to help end the ritual killings, among other agendas. You can read Kibigo's interview on the NRC website, which I'll link in the source list as per usual, but I'll summarize and share a few riveting snippets. Even though he denies being a witch doctor, many locals know to come to Kibigo for their worries, their illnesses, and their future livelihoods. He claims to only sacrifice animals and use herbs, herbs for his customers, but Obed confirms that Kibigo has previously killed children though he is now working with Obed and others to help stop this activity. Kibigo Edward explains that children between the ages of 0 and 18 are specifically preferred and selected in many circumstances due to the power that derives from the killing of innocents. Either someone from the family or an agent that usually lives within the same community will abduct a child and take him or her into the woods or to a rich witch doctor to be killed. The witch doctors will sometimes administer a diethyl ether to render the child unconscious, but many times the child will be hacked at alive, in most all of the cases, according to Kibigo. They are decapitated, their blood is drained and collected, and sometimes certain organs, tissues, or other body parts are cut off and harvested as well. Certain body parts, like genitalia, breasts, and teeth, are preferred because their power can lure spirits from the body of the customer the negative spirits allegedly possessing the customer and causing them grief, misfortune, whatever in the first place. After the blood and body parts are inspected by the witch doctor, they are brought back to the customer's home where they will remain, rotting away until the illness or calamity is cured or a new child is found for another sacrifice. A child sacrifice isn't cheap business for witch doctors in Uganda. It can it can cost upwards of 100,000 
Ugandan dollars, I guess, to have a child killed to remedy your situation or give a powerful blessing of good fortune. When asked, what about the poor? They don't have the ability to pay that much. Kibigo responded, the poor can pay with their own children. There's a really unsettling, though extremely necessary, poster that circulates through communities in Uganda with a picture on it. I'll try to describe it for you, but I suggest viewing the source link for it and looking for yourself to really get the feels from it. It reads to the right of the image, Child sacrifice is a crime. Say no to blood money. Protect the future generation. The image itself shows a man and a witch doctor sitting in front of each other, and in the middle on in the middle of the ground before them lies a bound child. There's a red null and void sign over the image, and underneath it reiterates, "Say no to blood money. Protect the future generation." It's it's pretty chilling, actually. The fact that they have to put that up is fucking crazy. The visual poster is the brainchild of the NRC, World Vision, and Kiampisi Child Care Ministries, or KCM. Kiampisi Child Care Ministries is a charity organization led by Peter Sewa Kirianga, which helps communities end child sacrifices in amazing ways, much like Obed does. KCM helps fund police, literally filling their gas tanks and providing them with patrol cars. <laughs> they educate communities and help child victims, survivors, and those that are about to be sacrificed. They actually help convince these parents not to sacrifice their kids to witch doctors. They move them to safe orphanages away from the dangers of abduction and murder. Though it has run rampant through Uganda and spread like wildfire, the ritual sacrifice didn't originate there. Those specific practices came from Tanzanian witch doctors who fled to Uganda when their own country outlawed the practice, I think. I think that's what I remember reading. <laughs> Sorry. It's been a long week. Ugandans are adamant about this, and most see the entire ordeal as a huge social issue and child human rights issue that needs to be tackled. One other person I'd like to mention here who helps in child sacrifice in Uganda is Annie Ikpa, an editor who had life-changing experiences centered around child abuse and ritual sacrifice and devoted her life to human rights activism as well. I heard her story on YouTube, and I think it was a laudable feature. I won't mention anything from the video for licensing reasons, but check it out if you want to know more. In South Africa, Muti murders still take place, which are very similar to the child murders in Uganda, as Muti murders are performed so that body parts can be harvested for medicinal purposes. Children oftentimes find themselves the preferred victims of Muti practi practitioners as well, which is very unfortunate. There are actually still street vendors in parts of South Africa and Muti practitioners who sell body parts. I know we've spent a hot minute already talking about some grisly stuff, but let's head on over to Ethiopia to dive into Mingi children. Along the Omo Valley in Ethiopia, tribe elders are still, still adhering to devastating customs that allow, encourage, and carry out the murders of babies and children. 
Any child, for a number of reasons, can be deemed a Mingi child by tribe elders. A woman who gets pregnant without the permission of the elders is doomed to have a Mingi child. A child whose teeth develop in an improper way are considered Mingi, as are children born out of wedlock or to parents whom the elders didn't approve of. Children that are twins. The list goes on. Children who disobey disobey, or have mental or physical traits too different from their own will be cursed as well. And sometimes it's brought upon multiple consecutive children, as in the case of Buko Balguda, who lost all 15 of her children. Now, just to be clear, I don't even like calling children mangy children. I think that's so fucking disrespectful. But for the sake of this episode, just so you can understand, they have been cursed as mingi. These mingi cursed children are believed to bring bad luck to the entire tribe, and the effects can be generational, so elders make swift decisions when it comes to determining if a child is mingi or not. Anything that they feel can or will cause misfortune will warrant the curse of mingi placed upon a child or baby, born or unborn and the parents have no say in the final decision. An estimated 300 children a year, 300 children a year are killed as a result of this belief in Ethiopia. Once a child is declared Mingi, they are usually left to the elements to die from starvation or the likes, like thrown into bushes, and left to die, or they're thrown into the midst of crocodile-infested waters, oftentimes in front of the parents of the babies being killed. The latter was the case with all of Balguda's 15 children. She had to watch all of them be thrown to crocodiles. One mother who was lucky enough to save her child from the clutches of murder by the tribal elders is Bonki, who was once a member of a Hamar community. The elders hadn't blessed Bonki's relationship with her partner and thus considered her pregnancy illegitimate and the baby, Mingi. They told her as soon as the baby was born, it would be killed to prevent the tribe or the elders from suffering any bad luck. Bonki fled the area and delivered her baby at a health center, naming him Tena. After much convincing from members of a local organization, village elders who had cursed Tena to a fate of death had agreed that Bonki and Tena could return to her, vill- her home village. Bonki explains that she and her son are happy in their village, and he's now too, though I do worry that they would still try something, but that's just me. After all, there are older children who have suffered from Mingi murders or attempted Mingi murders as well. Ugh. Let's just take a deep breath and a moment to clear any of that negative energy accumulating from all of the shitty talk of kid killing. (sighs) Shake that shit off too if you want or can. Okay, now let's jump back in. (laughs) We're going to jump into, uh, I guess, some muddier waters here in America. And talk about the Finders cult, or group, or whatever the fuck it was. The FBI's virtual vault is actually where I originally uncovered this information. Don't judge me. 
And boy, the rabbit hole that I went down. I originally planned on doing an episode just about the finders, but we won't go there this time. But if it interests you, I would really like to do another government-related episode with including some other shit, so let me know. In the late 70s and throughout the 80s, there were rumors of an elite sex cult, spiced up by rumors of satanic activity, operating in Florida near Tallahassee. It was known as the Finders Cult Group, and yes, it was part of the satanic panic of the South. In 1987, in Tallahassee, Florida, two men by the names of James Michael Howell and Douglas Ammerman were pulled over and arrested after reports of witnesses seeing six scruffy-looking children with two men in the park. The children were interviewed and appeared to suffer from abuse. They claimed to live outside in a watermelon field and even asked to go outside to use the restroom. The police were alarmed by the children's behavior and investigated further, trying to locate the parents of the children. Six weeks later, all charges were dropped against the two men, who did say they were members of the Finders Commune, a group that did live an alternative lifestyle, but they were not deemed child molesters or abusers. Investigators found no evidence of child abuse nor evidence corroborating any other witness claims in Tallahassee, so they released the two men. Some years later, Skip Clements of Stewart, Florida, managed to convince a couple of Congress members... (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I have to pause. I don't know why, because it's been a while since I've seen Letterkenny, but if any of you have seen Letterkenny, I want to know. Did any of you just get the urge to... When I said Stuart, because I did. Anyways, Skip Clements of Stuart, Florida, managed to convince a couple of Congress members to look into the claims of abuse by the commune or cult. Once the case was looked into, the Metro Police searched properties owned by Finders members. On two of the properties, they allegedly, allegedly, located several documents that contained instructions for, quote, obtaining children for unspecified purposes. Witnesses really believed that the kids were being brainwashed and that the commune was a front for a satanic child-abusing cult that had infested their community. While the investigation was officially dropped for internal CIA matters, The FBI released tons of declassified documents regarding the matters in 2019. You can view all of these documents on the FBI online vault, which I'll link in the reading recommendations. But I don't know, just the fact that they have so much information on the Finders group means they did an thorough investigation in the least is all I'll say. I I don't know. What's your opinion on the Finders group? Cult? Commune, satanic, not, child abusers, not. This next case is brief, but very saddening. When she was just six years old, Annika Lucas was sold, auctioned, into sex slavery by her family when she was six to very prominent politicians. Again, she was six. For five and a half years, she would suffer extreme emotional, verbal, psychological, and physical sexual abuse. She says, My body is full of scars, and every scar reminds me of the moment. There's a video I watched about her story as a survivor of ritual abuse 
though not so much satanic, it does have hints of it. Um, you can find it online by searching Real Women, Real Stories, and then Annika Lucas. Now, Annika is the founder and director of Liberation Prison Yoga, which, you guessed it, brings yoga into prisons, which I think is fucking awesome. We need more people like her in the world. I think it's terrible that she had to suffer the way that she did. She has a very, very, very wise outlook on things, I will say. And I do recommend um, listening to her story. Okie dokie. Moving right along to Quackanon and other conspiracies revolving around child sacrifice and ritual abuse. Now, I want to mention a book here. It's called The Devil and the Jews, The Medieval Conception of the Jew and Its Relation to Modern Antisemitism by Joshua Trachtenberg. It discusses ancient roots of antisemitism and how old, usually Christian, <laughs> myths surrounding the existence of an evil cabal have contributed to anti-Semitic feelings and movements throughout history. It is... I couldn't read the whole book, but I, I read a lot of information about the book. That's not the same. I do want to get the book, though. The ideas of blood libel and Jewish cabals torturing and ritually sacrificing children, among other things, all steamed up when a young boy by the name of William was found dead outside of his vill village of Norwich, his body showing signs of abuse and torture. No one knew who had killed him or why until 1173 when one Thomas of Monmouth reported on the incident, labeling it a ritual cabal sacrifice by Jewish monks. His version of events leading up to William's death were written and published, and the whole deal is titled The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich. Yes, this boy was martyred into a saint. You can, a Christian saint. You can read the entire work online, as it is in the public domain. It was written in the 1100s. <laughs> and I have linked a site with a nice um, introduction for you. That includes the work, but it's also got a nice introduction for you in the reading recommendations. Now, one other book that talks about this stuff, um, these myths of cabal sacrifices and uh, blood libel, is the book that I said earlier I was going to mention. So I'm going to mention it now. It's called Pedophilia and Empire, Satan, Sodomy, and the Deep State by Joachim Hagopian. I hope I'm saying that right. Okay, so this is a multi-volume series, though, and some of it does seem a little outlandish, I will say, but that's just my personal opinion on the matter. Now, um, and that's just this book specifically, but anyways... Yeah, it it's important it was important to me anyways to get the sense from these books and the devil and the jews to really get a sense of the shit that the jewish people have been fucking put through for centuries it's crazy it is absolutely insane their theories lead to some interesting information about again cabal sacrifices in the old days and just how often people blame the Jewish community for stupid shit. Stupid shit. During the bubonic plague, for instance, this information I gathered from these readings, there, 
There were people who thought Jewish folks were poisoning the water supply, even though Jewish people were getting sick and dying as well, so a bunch of them were massacred. During the bubonic plague, Jewish people were massacred. I didn't learn about that in school. As far as child sacrifice goes, I've been around my fair share of woke individuals who assure me and everyone else they talk to that this shit is actually happening right under our noses. Now, I'm not trying to discredit them at all. It's a perplexing perspective to have, and if it is occurring the way they say it is, that's fucking terrible and it does need to be stopped. But also, I think the ability to grip us and give us that ambiguity about it is a little frightening in itself. These ancient accusations against Jewish cabal and all of this shit has has rolled over throughout history um, into modern shit. And it really has been revived by QAnon, okay? They take it a step further, though, suggesting that the evil cabal is hiding in vast underground communities and sacrificing children to extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial overlords. They also believe that the world rulers and prominent global figures are part of an elite pedophile ring that is tearing through this country's children like old newspaper scraps. You can read stories about the supposed mole children of Central Park. Um, They would go around posting pictures of the outsides of hospitals and make up crazy stories and say a bunch of things about celebrities and all that, and it's really riveting shit that they say. Um, yeah, the mole children, and I can't, there was one other I was going to mention, but it's just all, just, yeah, interesting, I'll say that, okay. Which leads us to this tiny last little tidbit on dark magic and adrenochrome, because QAnon mentions that a lot, too. If you've seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, or you've read or seen A Clockwork Orange, you might remember the offbeat mentions of Adrenochrome. They're pretty quick. Apparently, Aldous Huxley described Adrenochrome as well. As far-fetched as the idea is, Adrenochrome is a real chemical compound. It's formed when adrenaline, or epinephrine, becomes oxidized. It was the subject of study for a short period of time, as some researchers speculated that an overproduction of adrenochrome was a main cause or contributor for schizophrenia. This idea was later refuted, however, as studies showed no indication of adrenochrome abnormalities in people suffering from schizophrenia. But, um, I guess the idea, though, is that Uh, which I heard this from someone, I can't remember who, but one of the darkest forms of magic that you can do is harming innocence. And so in abusing and killing a child, you, in essence, are accessing uh, supposedly very powerful dark power. <laughs> I I don't fucking know. So, but I, I don't have any information on that, nor do I want to say anything further on it, because I don't want to encourage anyone to go down a path like that. Okay. Now, 
If you suspect that someone you know is being abused, or if you were abused as a kid, please reach out for help. There are multiple ways you can do so anonymously, online or over the phone. Um, if you tell your therapist and you mention a name, they are legally obligated to, they're, they're, they're mandated reporters, so they're legally obligated to report it. And then it's out of your hands, you know? I will leave some links for you all to review if you need to report any child abuse or exploitation. Hopefully you don't, but if you do, I'm going to leave you some sites and numbers to which you can report. All right. Rating recommendations. This one is a video, but I really recommend watching the documentary Omo Child. It talks a lot about um, children in the Omo Valley that die and are deemed ningi. Michelle Remembers by Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder. Abuse of Innocence, The McMartin Preschool Trial by Paul Eberl. Pedophilia and Empire, Satan, Sodomy, and the Deep State by Joaquin Hagopian. The Devil and the Jews, The Medieval Conception of the Jew and its Relation to Modern Antisemitism by Joshua Trachtenberg. Then I've got um, a link for that pedophilia and what is it called? Pedophilia and Empire book uh, for you. Then I've also had I also have the link for the Life and Miracles of Saint William of Norwich, written in 1173, for you to view as well. There's an abstract for an article called Child Sacrifice in Tula: A Bioarchaeological Study ancient Mesoamerica from Cambridge Core that you can access if you feel so inclined to. I thought the abstract itself was really interesting. Of course, the FBI records from their online vault about the finders. I have linked their table of contents where you can view all of the shit. Some uh, digital articles for you guys. Schizophrenia and Cancer, the Adrenochrome Balanced Morphism. Child Sacrifice in Ancient Israel by Heath D. Durell. Ancient Carthaginians Really Did Sacrifice Their Children by the University of Oxford. Hail the Conquering Gods, Ritual Sacrifice of Children in Inca Society. Okay, that was spooky. Okay. You okay, Leia? That's scared. That spooked mommy too. It's alright though. You heard it here, folks. I don't even know what that was. I'm not. Anyways, next one. The Rise of Blood Sacrifice and Priest Kingship in Mesopotamia, A Cosmic Decree by Science Direct. A Mass Sacrifice of Children and Camelids at the Huanchaquito Las Llamas site, Moche Valley, Peru. And Tanzania, Uganda, Child Sacrifice for Wealth by C.R.I.N. Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode of the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. I know it was a heavy episode, but I 
was really intrigued by researching this shit. It was a little heavy and it took me a little while to get through because, you know, there was only so much in a day that I could take, honestly. And uh, also worked a lot this week. So, yeah. But I really, really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I look forward to the next episodes, which will be coming soon and they will be on a more regular schedule. I'm thinking about moving from semi-weekly to weekly, but we will see with my workload. I've moved into management positions, so we will see. But as always, if you know someone or you are someone who has a spooky story to share, whether it's alien-related, a case of deja vu, or other spooky shit, I want to fucking know. Tell me about it. Let me know. We'd love to hear it and feature you on an episode. You can let me know at Brit, B-R-I-T-T, at staystrange.org, or send me a message on the Primordia Facebook or Instagram page. Links are in the podcast description. As always, Thank you so, so, so much for listening. Your support means the world. And um, not that they are, but uh, XP Planus, if you're listening, I'm fucking checking out your podcast today. I'm so excited about it too. So um, yeah, as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Send positive vibes to yourself, to everyone, to the people in Ukraine, to the people around the world that just could use a little positivity, you know what I'm saying? And uh, don't forget, stay strange.